welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, a podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and joining me is the woman whose warnings will come at a much more reasonable hour. It's Lydia. <laughs> I even brought my special glasses. <laughs> <laughs> welcome back, Lydia. I missed you last oh, month. Yeah, I missed you too. I can't believe. Wait a minute. Did we record last month? No. <laughs> No, he says slyly. And, <laughs> yeah. As far as the world is concerned. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Way to pull back the curtain, Lydia. Oh, man. Uh, no, uh, that was my uh, other podcast. Uh, <laughs> I don't have another podcast. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back because, you know... Linda didn't work out. Oh, my gosh. Well, let me tell you something about Linda. <laughs> she had kind of a masculine voice if you uh, if you listened closely. <laughs> we, this is a non-judgment zone. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it was a bad male voice. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, well, anyway, thank you for joining me, Lydia. This is going to be a fun uh, episode, I do believe. I hope so. (laughs) This is a bit of a curveball for me without getting (laughs) too into it quite yet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we start, I should thank everyone for tuning in. And for anyone who hasn't already, let you know that you can listen and subscribe to this show by visiting uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Spotify. And please, if any of those uh, outlets let you rate and review us, please do so. And of course, you can always find us, whatever podcast app of your choice you use, I'm pretty sure if you put our name in the search engine, you'll find us. We have a Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, just go to YouTube and search for Orphan Entertainment. And there you can watch many of the films we have covered here on the podcast. And if you subscribe there, you'll get a kind of a heads up of the films that we're going to be covering next. Because I always post them there and then forget to actually share what we're going to be doing <laughs> over on the Facebook group. So all these links are on our webpage. Just go to orphanedentertainment.com. So with that, we're going to listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we get back, we're going to talk about 1932's Midnight Warning. Another five-minute mystery. Randall, good afternoon. Mr. Randall, just a moment, please. Randall speaking. Hello, Jim. This is Tony, Mary's brother. Well, Tony, my boy, how are you? All fine, it's Phil. Just flew in from Cleveland for the big race at Diamond Track. Welcome to New York. Uh, where are you now, Tony? Down at the track. Thought we could drive out to your home tonight and surprise my sister. I haven't seen her in a couple of years. Now, that's swell. Give me a call when you get back in the city and we'll drive out together. Mary will be thrilled. Be sure not to tell her I'm in town. I want to surprise her. Okay, Tony. See you later. (laughs) 
Here we are, Tommy. Hey, your place looks swell, John. You've done a lot of work on it since I was last year. Yes, Mary and I have worked hard on this property. I can't wait to see Mary's face when she sees you. Neither <laughs> can I. Mary! Hello, Mary! Darling, where are you? Maybe she went out to the store or the friend's house. Well, not Mary. She makes a point of being here when I get home. Or else she tells me where she'll be. Well, you're a lucky guy. I'll say. Hello, Mary! I'll appear in the sitting room. Mary! Mary! Hold it, John. There's nothing we can do. She said. John, you've got to pull yourself together. The inspector will be here any minute. Pour me a drink, will you, Tony? I'll be all right, I guess. I'll go. Inspector? Yes, Inspector Abbott. Come in, Mr. Abbott. I'm John Randall. This is my wife's brother, Anthony Marin. Inspector? How do you do? I'm sorry about your wife, Mr. Randall. Thanks, Inspector. I don't want to seem cold-blooded, Mr. Randall, but we may as well begin the investigation. Well, my wife's in here, Inspector. Not a pretty sight. One bullet through the left temple. No sign of a struggle. Your wife must have been resting, which gave the murderer a perfect opportunity. I should say she's been dead for at least three hours. Did the end come quickly, Inspector? Yes, I'm sure she never knew a thing. Where were you, Mr. Randall, this afternoon around three o'clock? At the Midston building where I work. I made one business call over on the east side. I had an appointment at 2.30. I took about an hour. I see. And you, Mr. Marin? I flew in from Cleveland this morning. Arrived at about 1.30 and went straight to the Diamond Race track. Yes, Inspector. Tony called me from the track shortly before I left the office. I can't believe that Mary's gone. Who could have wanted to murder her? I haven't had the time to figure out the reason why, but I know who did the murder. Inspector Abbott, you mean that... I mean that Anthony Marin murdered his own sister. What was the clue that led Inspector Abbott to accuse Tony Marin of murder? In a moment, the inspector will tell you, but first... I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen, and that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. And now, back to our story. Mr. Marin became an immediate suspect when he telephoned you, Mr. Randall, from the Diamond Racetrack. It is ironic indeed that you had advanced knowledge of his mistake. Perhaps murder could have been avoided had you known that at racetracks there are no public telephones. <laughs>
Midnight Warning. It's an American film directed by Spencer Gordon Bennett. I want to talk a little bit about him, but I think I'm going to wait till like the closing thoughts because what I want to say is we got to go through the, some of the film first. <laughs> the film stars William Boyd as William Cornish, Hooper Atchley appears as Dr. Stephen Walcott, and Claudia Dell is Enid Van Buren. Now, uh, William Boyd, is he often went by William Stage Boyd. He did this to kind of uh, avoid confusion with a better-known performer who was working under the same name. And we talked about him when we reviewed the film High Voltage, if you remember. I kept thinking, this does not look like that guy. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I was thinking it was the same guy. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is the other one. Yeah, the other William Boyd. (laughs) <laughs> well, if you listen to that episode, you remember us talking about that William Boyd uh, losing his contract with RKO, RKO Studio because this William Stage Boyd was arrested during Prohibition for alcohol <gasps> possession. I had and, forgotten that. And many newspapers ran that story with the other oh. William Boyd's photograph. Oh. Well, which... I mean, that should make Ryan Reynolds feel a lot better. <laughs> 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 Just saying. <laughs> now, I'm guessing that the rule in the Screen Actors Guild, which was founded just a couple of years after this film about the no two actors having the same name, I'm guessing was a result of instances like this. <laughs> I actually didn't realize that was a rule in the U.S. I knew it was in the U.K., but mm-hmm. that's interesting. That's one of those yes. things that slipped by. Yeah, so very interesting. So it's kind of fun uh, seeing the other uh, William Stage Boyd. He put the stage in his name because he'd actually worked on uh, on Broadway oh, prior to moving to movies. <laughs> and so he thought that would kind of like um, emphasize his experience yeah. <laughs> on the stage. Yeah, exactly. Which apparently people really liked as uh, films were going into uh, talking pictures. Uh, I guess that was something that the uh, studios were kind of looking for, people with experience <laughs> of performing and actually speaking lines. And actually being able to enunciate. <laughs> exactly. No more Lena Lamonts. Now, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of other information about the film or anyone else in it. They are all kind of just, um, you know, character actors, uh, studio-paid yeah. actors. There's nothing really stood out beyond the uh, Mr. Boyd's, uh, you know, confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and, and several of them had a whole lot of titles under their belt, but never came to much. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, they were just contract actors. Uh, so they, they did a lot of film work. Um, but just um, a, a few even probably kind of starring roles, but nothing really stood out as being, oh, we should talk about that or anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Which it's just we'll, a lot of, we'll, see a lot a of, of well, why. they went to New yeah. <laughs> a, there was a lot of, well, they moved to New York and they got homesick. Mm-hmm. So they come back to L.A. and then they <laughs> went to film and they went to the studio and like, okay, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, so uh, we can go ahead and get right into the plot then. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. All right, like I said, Midnight Warning, 1932. This film begins with Dr. Stephen Walcott watching out of his hotel window with some binoculars. The phone rings, and he's told that a Mr. Cornish is downstairs to see him, and Walcott has him sent right up. While Walcott waits, he glances at the paper, and we learn that there's a big political convention happening in town. And we also learn that Walcott's friend, Mr. Cornish, has made the paper as well. He has been working with and possibly training the president's secret service. (laughs) 
Cornish arrives and the two friends greet each other. Bill, you old son of a gun. <laughs> Hello, Steve. How's everything? Fine. You're a sight for sore eyes. Come on in. <laughs> How long has it been now? Four years. You haven't changed any. Uh, I'm getting balder. <laughs> and famous. New York's most prominent nerve specialist. <laughs> Happy to know you. Yeah. <laughs> You've been crashing into print yourself. Yeah. That's not so good for a dick, is it? I don't know. I imagine there are a lot of these investigators who wouldn't object to being spread all over the front page like you've been for the past week. No, I suppose not. But publicity spoils my game. I work best in the dark. And for the love of the game, eh? Have you been at it ever since? Yeah, I can't get out of it. <laughs> too many things to snoop into. And I'm an incurable snooper. <laughs> I'm not sure I've been this happy to see an old friend in a really long time. <laughs> He's so well, excited. And he just keeps pumping his arm. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite an aggressive handshake. <laughs> I think my favorite bit was the, the comment about, oh, you don't look any different. Well, I'm going more bald. And yeah. I'm thinking, you've got a pretty good head of hair, yeah, sir. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that too. He's all that, line was written, <laughs> that line was written well before yeah. anyone was cast. <laughs> Maybe he had even more hair before. <laughs> Who knows? He was like a Wookiee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was a 1920s hippie. Yeah. <laughs> Cornish notices uh, Walcott's binoculars, and Walcott explains that he bought them for the convention, and that he says they're pretty powerful. Well, Cornish pulls out a pair of special glasses. They look a little bit like opera glasses. They do, and a little bit like jeweler's glasses. Oh, that's actually a better, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he tells Walcott to give them a try. And uh, Walcott is amazed as they are apparently even more powerful than his large binoculars. They're so powerful. He can see a man lighting his cigarette on the street. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't you don't know how high up in the uh, uh, hotel he is. He well, could be <laughs> I like top floor. <laughs> they take a moment to like really show his view before he puts them on. And yeah, then, you see the traffic going by. Yeah, yeah, but then the next one, it's the traffic, though, is of the cars. It's not of the foot traffic. And then the close-up is of the foot traffic. So you're like, I don't know if that's any better or not. No. But we're led to believe it is. <laughs> it, exactly. And it doesn't look like it would be any better than what his binoculars would have shown him. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> but they were made in Germany, so they must be amazing. Yes, Cornish explains that they were made uh, in Germany, and he always carries them. He uses them in, in his business. You know, in ways. Yeah. <laughs> if this were a modern guy, he'd say, it's my business. Uh, <laughs> I use it in my business. Cornish wants to know why Walcott called for him, as Walcott said that he had a surprise for him. Walcott produces something wrapped in paper from his pocket and shows it to Cornish. Cornish examines it and says it looks like a human ear bone. Uh, Walcott explains that he found it in the fireplace last night. Rather unusual, isn't it? Finding the ear bone of a human being in the fireplace of a fashionable hotel. Oh. Oh. Yes, the, the kind of gasp. Uh, Walcott collapses and Cornish calls the front desk for a doctor. That is one of the most staged faints I think I've ever I like seen he, in he film. He goes up on his toes and then he goes down. It's, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> Maybe he should have taken some lessons from Mr. Stage Boyd over oh, there. No. <laughs> <laughs> the front desk clerk immediately talks to the hotel manager. Hello. Send a doctor up here quick. Mr. Walcott is ill. Right away, sir. Oh, uh, Mr. Gordon. Someone just telephoned from apartment A. He wants a doctor. C. 
something has happened to Dr. Walcott. Apartment A. <laughs> wink, yeah. wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the first part where you, I, well, this, I guess, early on in the movie, we see a bit of overacting and it, it's to the movie's, well, I don't want to give too much away quite yet, but you definitely notice the overacting and you're led immediately to know that something is going on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, especially with the finding the ear bone in the fireplace, which honestly, it looked like a really big bone for coming out of somebody's and, ear. <laughs> Maybe if the person had, <laughs> I'm not going to get into it. Maybe they had a really large head. <laughs> yeah, this could be. Well, the hotel doctor, along with the desk clerk and the manager, arrive, and the doctor gives a quick examination of Walcott. He says that Walcott is fine. Eh, maybe just vertigo, a sudden rush of blood to the head. Cornish draws attention to a wound on Walcott's forehead, but the doctor assumes he just must have bumped it when he collapsed. That's logical. Walcott comes to, and while everyone's attention is on him, the hotel manager quietly motions to the clerk to close the window. The clerk tries to do so without drawing attention to himself, but Cornish spots him in a mirror. The men leave, leaving Walcott and Cornish, and that is when Cornish reveals that Walcott has been shot. I like that. Take my advice. Yeah, take his advice and get shot at again. What? 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 (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Downstairs, we get a brief scene of the manager and the doctor talking, and it appears that something like this has happened before. Back upstairs, Cornish has found the slug and shows Walcott where it ricocheted off the wall. I assume it's a slug. You don't really get to see it. No, no, they they show the uh, quote-unquote ear bone more than they do the slug yeah. in Walcott's hand. And I, I do get a kick out. He explains that, uh, I don't know if it was around here or later when they were like, well, did you hear a shot? I'm like, well... No, but there was, you know, traffic noise and everything. Like, you wouldn't, even if you couldn't hear the actual shot, I think you'd hear something bouncing off the wall. I kind of <laughs> thought that, too. I mean, he mentions a silencer, but, yeah, he would definitely hear something hit behind him, especially yeah. if it's going at bullet speed. Yeah, and I should mention that we as an audience don't hear anything either. Yeah. I mean, when Walcott faints, it's just him, him in front of the mirror, and then suddenly he does his... Oh, his and, swoon. And no traffic noise either. No. <laughs> yeah, there's no traffic noise coming from the window. I believe this is what we call suspension of disbelief. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you better tighten up that suspension there. <laughs> <laughs> well, despite Walcott convinced he doesn't have an enemy in the world, much less anyone who anyone that would want to shoot at him, Cornish wonders if they would take another shot at him if they had the chance. So he rigs up a dummy with Walcott's clothes on a coat tree, and he sets it by the window and then opens it. The two men watch from the other window, and sure enough, the dummy is hit. Come on downstairs. Have you got a gun? Yes, but we'll bring it. Do I have to have a gun to interview the hotel management? We're not going to interview the hotel management. Yes, we're going to interview the people in the fourth floor front, the third house from the corner on the opposite side of the street. That's where the shot came from. You saw it? As plain as I see you. But listen here, Bill. This is a matter for the police. I saw all the shooting I wanted to see during the war. Now, don't worry. There won't be anybody there when we arrive. Besides, I am the police. Come on. It'll be much more interesting than a midnight supper. Yeah, and much more dangerous. Two men break into the, the apartment and look around. They find some powder burns on a windowsill, but not much else. I like how in this scene, Walcott... 
you know, as they come in, says, oh, will that open any lock? And Corner says, just about. He's got all these, like, little gadgets that are kind of... Yeah, they really make him out to be kind of like super spy or something. They do, but he's remarkably... Oh, I'm not sure I should lead with this this early on, but I think he's very boring. <laughs> he's just like a remarkably boring personality, but he's got like all these gadgets. Cornish wants to come back later with a team to look for fingerprints. I do like, though, that all, all of a sudden he's he's part of the police. And I'm, I was confused because I, I was looking at this as him being a private investigator. The first time, I yeah, I thought it. he was too. I thought he was a private investigator, but he, yeah, he does refer to himself uh, when they go down to go look at the uh, the apartment where the shot came from. He says, "Well, I am, I the, am police. the police." Yeah, and I thought, well, "When what?" <laughs> oh, okay. Or maybe it's just because I, I don't know because he's been trained the Secret Service. Is he actually maybe like? part of the secret service or i don't think the fbi was around yet but the precursor to that yeah his his place in the law enforcement industry is left really loose <laughs> yes it's very general so as the two are getting ready to leave though someone starts to unlock the door so the two go and hide a woman comes in and calls for eric she looks into she looks around a little bit then she looks into a vase on the table and finds a note after reading it, she looks troubled, and then, after calling for a taxi, hastily leaves. Cornish spies on her from the window and using his special glasses to read her lips <laughs> as she tells the driver where to take her. This is another one of those, oh, I just happen to be able to read lips. Yeah. And you, it just could have been introduced to the story a little better. Oh, so what kind of thing do you do? Oh, you know, I've had to learn to read lips, and I've got this, and I've got that. You know, I can break into... But instead, you just... it It's very... Deus Ex Machina, as it happens, you know, he just, oh, I just happen to have that a could have been his name. He's he's Detective <laughs> Deus, Deus Ex Machina. Machina. <laughs> <laughs> he just he just fortunately just happens to have things, and they don't lead up to it, and they don't explain it well. And I think even compared to other movies at the time, they don't explain it well. No, not at all. Well, rather than follow her, Cornish decides it's time to talk to the hotel manager. The two go in, and Cornish makes mention of the heat. Because apparently, the, keep in mind, this is early 20th century in the middle of some town somewhere. No air conditioning, so everyone has the, either the windows open or, or the windows closed. And he makes a point of opening the one of the windows in the uh, manager's office to get in some fresh air. And then Cornish confronts him. You got any idea why we're here? Not the slightest. Well, it's to tell you that we think... Or rather, I think that Bronson's theory about what was wrong with Walcott is a lot of bunk. Really? Really? You know what happened to him? Why... He was shot. Shot? Just that. Or rather, shot at. Why, why should anyone shoot into a hotel room at midnight? That cut on his forehead is a bullet wound. Somebody took a pot shot at him through the window. Oh, absurd. Why should anyone want to shoot at Dr. Walcott? I don't know. That's what we're here to talk over with you. And the whole time that this is going on, the desk clerk listens in through the door. The manager is sure Cornish is mistaken and asks that he keep his suspicions between them because if news got out, it would be really bad for the hotel. I mean, business had just started coming back and everything. Also, keep in mind, 1932, so you would have been coming just at the end of the uh, mm -hmm. Depression. So, yeah, a big uh, swank hotel. 
yeah, you don't want bad news getting out. And that's kind of a, a hint of things to come as well without giving anything away. Well, Cornish and Walcott agree that they won't say anything, but they insist that the hotel change rooms. Cornish suggests an inside room, you know, one that looks on the courtyard rather than the street. So the hotel does. They have a, an apartment just on the other side of the courtyard on the first floor. This room is perfect as it allows Cornish to spy on the manager's office and lip-read their conversation through the window that he opened. <laughs> and while doing so, they get a phone number and we get the conversation. Hello? Things are bad, if you must know, Adolf. There's been another attempt. This time on a prominent New York doctor. Walcott, the nurse specialist. And that fellow, William Cornish, the investigator that you've been reading about so much in the newspapers, is mixed up in the case. Cornish? What's he got to do with it? And nothing yet. Uh, but he's a friend of Walcott's, and he has me worried. Any clues? No, not yet. When the Countess Dorbear was driven out at midnight last week, Rankin was sure that they were shooting from a car that was parked across the street. But he's changed his mind now, and uh, has nothing more to suggest. Rankin's a fool. He's doing his best. You can't expect a hotel clerk to be much of a detective. Go to a regular firm of detectives. <laughs> that would be a bright idea, wouldn't it? They'd find out about the other. You better do something quick. It'll get into the newspapers. And where will the Clarendon Arms be then? It will be as bad as if the other were found The out. other? Yeah, they just say the other. Yeah. I actually thought they were talking about a person at first. Well, I think they were. And that something, you know, towards the end of the film, we find out what the other or who the other is. Well, is it the person or is it the incident? Or is it... Yes. What is it? <laughs> and that's what we attempt to find out through the rest of the movie. Exactly. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye bye. <laughs> An assistant to the clerk comes into the office and tells the men that he saw a girl at the apartment house. He tried to follow her, but he lost her. The manager is excited over this new clue and hangs up the phone. Cornish now knows that the hotel knows as much about the shootings as they do and he leaves to use a payphone to call headquarters to trace the phone number. Once again, he's got a headquarters, so yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> he, he went from this private really... <laughs> detective in the beginning with his business, etc., and now he's a cop again. So Yeah, I, if this were, he'd be Scotland Yard if it were the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, honestly, I'm surprised he wasn't, <laughs> even yeah, in this. I know, right? At this point, he should be part of the KGB and the CIA, <laughs> and I mean, he's got James Bond stuff. Why yeah. not? <laughs> Well, time passes, as shown by a rather sluggish clock face, <laughs> and uh, Cornish returns to Walcott's with some information. Get your hat and coat. We're going calling. Where? 241 Wellington Place. We're going to see if we can locate that good-looking young woman. That's not Capital 6753. No, that's Klein's Mortuary. That's who Gordon was talking to. He's a heavy stockholder in the hotel here. Who? Gordon or Klein? Both. I had them all looked up. And your friend Doc Bronson owns a big slice himself. Well, how about Rankin, the hotel clerk? No, he's not in on it. He's just an employee. Hmm. 
Well, now I don't know any more about the affair than I did at first. But it's evident that for some reason, someone who has a grudge against the hotel is shooting at the guests through the windows. Yeah, and also, for some reason, the hotel people don't dare go to the police about it. But do you think the underworld has anything to do with it? No, they're dealing with amateurs, and they know it. That's why they're fighting with the only means at hand. Come on, we'll look up the young woman. She's the keynote to the whole situation. So Cornish and Walcott arrive at Wellington Place and start to have a look around. What kind of house is this? I'm just curious. It strikes me as a country house, but I think they're still supposed to be in the city. Yeah, but I don't know what city. I, I, I'll, oh, I'll admit, I originally thought they were like in New York or something like mm-hmm. that. But then it's like, no, no, no. That I forget where it, exactly it happens. But they're, oh, because Walcott is like a, like, uh, a big doctor from New York or something. So yes. they're somewhere and out so west, traveling. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but then or middle so America. Many, yeah. There's so many bushes around for hiding in, though. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> you need those. It's a detective film. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they're starting to have a look around, another man shows up and goes on into the house. Cornish talks Walcott into visiting and asking them why they shot at him. And Walcott reluctantly agrees. <laughs> this is the weirdest conversation. Sure, just go in and ask them why they're shooting at you. Well, what if they shoot at me? Oh, they're not going to shoot at you. You're good. I'll be, it's like, I'll be around. I'll be around. Yeah, yeah, this is just so, oh, things or stuff, whatever he says earlier. I'll be around. Right, the one I just stuff. Do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's way, oh, I use it in ways. <laughs> it's like, yeah. could you be a little more vague with your answers? Because at this point, I'm not even sure that your real name is Cornish. That, like, nope, his, his real name is Detective Vague Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> well, Walcott goes to the door and he confronts the woman, who lets him in after being signaled to do so by the man hiding out of view. Walcott gives the woman the lowdown and what led him there and to her. The man, Eric, makes his appearance, and he, like the woman, acts as if they know nothing but ends up holding Walcott at gunpoint while he tells the woman that she needs to leave if she's to catch her train. I wonder who came up with the names on this movie because you've got Enid and Eric, Mm -hmm. who I would have pegged as brother and sister. And you have Dr. Cornish, or you have Mr. Cornish. And and then I like that Mr. Gordon is played by Mr. Gordon. Gordon. Yeah. (laughs) I I wonder if they just let them make up their own names before they start filming it. (laughs) They are an interesting collection of names. Yeah. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about that before until you just said it. Enid and Eric, they're fiancés. But yeah, those names certainly would be better for uh, brother sister. Yeah, yeah. Especially because... And then they have... Well, and we'll, we'll get to it. I don't want to spoil anything yet, I guess. But it, as it turns... Well, yeah. I'll wait. Never mind. <laughs> well, he's got a bit of a strange spelling. If you look him up, it's E-R-I-C-H. And then and then when they're the uh, hotel manager is on the phone with the person he's on the phone with, they say his name, and I think they say his name, and it's a really German name. It's kind of random yeah. how German the name is. Uh, Adolf. Klein is what it was. Yes, there you go. Adolf Klein. But it's funny. I mean, this is 1932. It can't be a reference to anything. So, well, I mean, it can't be a reference specifically probably to anything. No, I don't don't (laughs) think so either. It's just, yeah, it's just an interesting choice on names. I always wonder how Mm -hmm. they come up with names when people write stories or, you know, Mm -hmm. scripts for movies and... 
I think they just, I think Gordon couldn't remember what his character's name was supposed to be, so they just called him his real Yeah, that could be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cornish eventually gets the jump on Eric and gets the gun from him. Cornish has a sit-down with Eric. He isn't so much concerned with Eric taking shots at the hotel as why he's taking shots at the hotel. (laughs) Well, that's logical. Who really cares if you're shooting at people? What I really want to know is why you're shooting at people. Yeah, he... Keep doing what you're doing, but tell me why you're doing it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll... Maybe final thoughts. We'll we'll talk more about Cornish, I think. (laughs) Eric tells Cornish that he believes that Cornish will think him crazy, just like everyone thought his fiancée Enid crazy. But he tells him what has been going on. I'm warning you. You're going to say we are both out of our heads. Go ahead. Well, here it is. Miss Van Buren, my fiancée, comes from Sumatra. She's American-born, but she spent most of her life there. She arrived on the Maru Prince two months ago with her brother. They went directly to the Clarendon Arms and engaged room, apartment A. Now, in flashback, we learn that Enid and her brother arrived from Sumatra and checked into the hotel. Apartment A, the same room as Walcott. Enid's brother wasn't feeling well, so she asked for the house doctor to be sent up. Bronson uh, didn't seem to think it was anything to worry about, and in a few hours, Ralph did seem to be better. The next morning, Enid left for Salt Lake City. She didn't want to go. It worried her to leave him there at the hotel ill and alone. It was very necessary, however. You see, the reason they came to America was to settle an estate they had inherited. And there were certain papers to be signed that only one or the other of them could attend to. Also, these papers had to be signed by a certain date. So, Enid just had to go. Now, on the train, she wired him. And again from Salt Lake City. She received no reply. You can imagine her state of mind when she returned and made her way to the hotel. Another flashback, Enid returns to the hotel and is told they have no record of her brother or her ever being there. And after a lot of uh, falderall, (laughs) they and the police have Enid committed to a psychiatric hospital. That's what you do. I mean, you get a psychotic, you get a hysteric woman, you just commit her. It's the only, you know, practical thing to do. This is actually the the one part of the film that I actually kind of, it was like, you, you keep showing this flashback. This is where I wish the film had started. Yes. Because this yes. is actually kind of interesting. It's kind of twisted. It's dark. Oh, my gosh. What are they doing to this woman? And Oh, this is definitely where it hooked me. And from this point on, I couldn't stop watching. Right. Almost. And, <laughs> almost, yeah. And this is actually, believe it or not, and this is going to be short, I know, guys, but that's actually where I'm going to stop the synopsis. Because this film is just like an hour long, and we're already like, 40 minutes into this bad boy. <laughs> yeah. So everything, so this is like where it all picks up and we really get the, this is where the mystery starts. And that's the kind of the shame is we go through a long time before we really get to the heart of the mystery. I mean, we kind of stumble around with Cornish and Walcott waiting for them to find the mystery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's, the mystery it's... is what is the mystery? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> they should just call it the movie in search of a mystery. Yeah. Um, but this is, I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I thought we'd go a little bit further <laughs> because this really is where it gets interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, immediately after it, it actually gets a little bit more interesting. So, you, you know, you finally, at this point, at least you have a missing brother. You have a woman committed. You have, um, a fiance who has just now sent his, you know, his girl off who knows where to get on a train and yeah yeah and and, and that's it i'm that's trying to end. remember do we, do we actually ever do we see enid again we do we see enid a lot again oh okay thank you i it that's what i get for not actually finishing the film on the second watch <laughs> no that's <laughs> all right this one i actually I'm, did it's fresh turn on off. my mind i watched yeah no it's fresh on my mind i watched it again today and i genuinely think they could almost start the movie here you could watch the second 30 minutes of the movie and probably be fine with the story like that's really the because the two quote main characters in it cornish and walcott they they have no character development they have really no input on the story at all it could have happened completely without them uh, neither one of them had to be involved period mm-hmm. and there's no appeal to their character you don't get caught up in either of their characters the people you really start caring about are enid and eric and of course enid's brother ralph and so it's it's weird yeah. <laughs> you're like well you can just skip the first half guys we just told you the first half of the movie just go watch the second half yeah, no, you really could. It's it's such a shame. And like you said, three quarters of the film, you're waiting and you're watching and you're like, okay, what's going on? And then when it really actually gets interesting, you're like, oh, the movie's over? Mm-hmm. Or it's well, almost over? Yeah. yeah. I have some strong opinions about the end of this movie. I kind of want to talk about them. Well, I tell you what. <laughs> I we, I will not. We could go ahead and rate it. Yeah, and then yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And keep talking. Yeah, without you know, not going to bury any leads or anything here. This film gets <laughs> like almost nothing for me. I'll give it a one. Really, <laughs> I, I mean, this really was what this film. And I I meant to mention this earlier. This was a film that was suggested to us by a listener. Uh, Graham Donald, and he admitted that it wasn't a great film. There was definitely some plot holes and some dodgy acting in his email <laughs> that he sent us mm-hmm. is how he described it. But it just it sounded like it would be fun, and being that it was a, a listener that wanted to suggest a film, I just didn't think we could pass it up. Yeah, and it, I think it is, some aspects of it are really fun, but the issue that you're running into is that the story doesn't get started. It takes so long for anything interesting to happen even even to the point where at the very beginning when Wolcott gets sh- shot at, you're kind of like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of make the sound he makes when he collapses. <laughs> eh. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay. <laughs> he, it, you know, it, no, it, you don't have enough investment in the characters to care yet. And, you, and then, you know, it's just it's either too much too fast or too little too late. Yeah, because by the time you get to the characters that you actually want to care about, you're three quarters into the film. Mm-hmm. You get to Enid and Eric and and then and tangentially Ralph. Those are the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. And but you unfortunately have to sit and watch Walcott and Cornish go from and go I, from one room to another. And I have to admit. I was more interested in the clerk, whose name I think is Rankin, Rankin. in this. 
I wanted to know the that guy's background. I wanted to know his story because he looks suspicious from the beginning. <laughs> but he looks interesting. He even had the. He's not one of these dudes wandering around in a tuxedo being boring. <laughs> he's interesting. He even had the uh, the mustache perfect for twirling. Yes, he totally <laughs> did. But he's also got more personality than anybody else does. Everybody else is just well. I think you did this, and then the other person's like, "No, I didn't do that. I did that." And the other person says, "Well, what if you did that?" And it's like, this is the most boring conversation I've listened to all day. Yeah. <laughs> like, so eh, maybe now maybe I'm like, you know how usually I like a movie more after we talk about it? <laughs> I think on this one I'm liking it less. I I think it's, we'll see, and I'm torn going in. I thought I was going to give it a two. Mm-hmm. And I still think, you know what? I'm going to stick with my two because I still think that there's value in the second half of this film that merits that two. Okay. I'm not going to rate it any higher than no, I, I would. There's a, I would be very have, surprised if you rated it any higher. <laughs> I have deep moral issues with the second half of this film. All right. Well, I think we can talk about it. I think we'll from con- giving it more. Yeah. I think we'll go ahead and talk about it. So you know, uh, official spoiler warning for the end of Midnight Warning. The here's the Midnight Spoiler Warning. <laughs> when we find out what they do to poor Enid. That's where it kind of pulls me in. <laughs> There's so much about this movie that I just want to kick people. So we go from <laughs> Walcott, fi- er, Walk- uh, not Walcott, Cornish finds out what's happened, that Enid's brother has disappeared. She's been looking for him. And they figure out that Eric has sent Enid off because they said that if anybody finds him, she's going to go jump on a train and get to safety. And so they're talking about it and they he says well she's safe she's going to go back to the hotel or she's going to go back to the apartment get the gun and flee the city at which point corner says oh well the hotel guys know she's there because somebody else came in and told them that they'd seen her there so immediately eric goes oh no we got to go get her or else they're going to try and commit her again so there's a mad rush to go get enid who of course has been absconded by the hotel guys who show up you know and give her just enough time to scratch a brief message into a surface so that, you know, the heroes chasing after them can figure out where they think that she's gone. Mm-hmm. So so here's where it gets a bit more funky. <laughs> <laughs> they, they take her to the mortuary, which we find out was the number that Gordon was calling that was being lip-read across the courtyard. And uh, who happened, which happens to belong to a major stakeholder in the hotel. And this is, it gets so convoluted from here. It's nuts. Yes. <laughs> so, so they take her back to there, to there, to the mortuary for who knows what reason. They lock her up in a room with just tons of bodies on stretchers. Now, I don't know what kind of a mortuary just stores their <laughs> bodies out on stretchers, but I'm going to avoid that place because it, A, sorry guys, the truth is that place is going to stink. Even with embalming fluid. Oh my gosh. This is where we lose listeners. I'm sorry. My point is, so she she's there, but not only that, not only do they lock her in a room with a bunch of bodies just laying around under sheets. And I have to believe that in the 30s, they had coolers in mortuaries, okay? This is the middle of summer. Everybody's talking about the heat. What is going on? And not only do they leave her in there, they've got... Rankin, the clerk from the hotel, with some kind of a tube making ghost noises to try and make her crazy. 
This is the worst bad guy plan since Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, maybe it's the worst bad guy plan until Snakes on a Plane. But it, you're in, literally, their plan is not to just quietly dispose of this girl, not to pay her off, not to, you know, just have her recommitted. They first want to literally drive her crazy. This is just... These are amateurs. But I mean, obviously. This is this is the darkest episode of Scooby-Doo you've ever seen. It is. <laughs> it so is. So fortunately for Enid, just as she passes out, you know, our heroes in blue, actually all in tuxedos, show up and uh, are just in time to hear her scream in a panic, you know, and go looking for her and the police rush in. And this is where I start having problems with the movie. <laughs> this is this yeah. is where you have problems? This, this is where I start having problems. Okay. So we find out that Ralph, the brother, sorry, Enid, he's dead. Now, I'll give Enid some credit here. She does take a moment to look shocked and then very sad and drop her head in her hands. You know, mm-hmm. I suppose in the 1930s, you had to hold on to yourself in public. That's probably pretty reasonable. <laughs> then we find out what he died from was the bubonic plague. And I meant to look up and see if there was an outbreak of the bubonic plague in Sumatra in 1932. But I'll be honest, I forgot. Yeah, that's okay. And it probably wouldn't matter. I think it was a matter of, okay, we need some place that sounds exotic where someone might get something like the bubonic plague. Um, Sumatra, that'll why? work. <laughs> why in the world did they feel like it had to be the bubonic plague i mean couldn't they come up with something else (laughs) like aren't there other diseases that are a little bit more contemporary that people might be afraid to have some kind of an outbreak of maybe that was contemporary in 1930s (sighs) i don't know that's my question so maybe you guys you guys listening would like to you know educate me a little bit on the history of the bubonic plague in the 1900s and later but okay even that though i'll give him that it's possible i remember there was a girl in colorado got bit by a squirrel and she ended up having it that was within the last two decades so okay i'll let him have the bubonic plague then we find out that they disposed of the body by burning it in the fireplace in the hotel Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) not in the boiler in the hotel In the fireplace of the suite. Well, they probably couldn't use the boiler because it's summer. (laughs) Be too hot. This is, well, I guess this is a year later. So, okay. I assume they scooped out all the bones they could find and left the ear bone behind because obviously that's what our good friend, the Dr. Walcott. Well, apparently that's the hardest uh, body part to dispose of in the fire is the but, ear bo- human ear bone. <laughs> Let's go back to e- to Eric's description of Enid's ordeal when she first came back looking for Ralph. And they take her up to the room that she was in after she has described the color scheme and the arrangement of the room. And it looks completely different. Mm-hmm. Skip forward. <laughs> they said, we had to fumigate and completely redo the room. So they just didn't bother cleaning the ashes out of the fireplace <laughs> when they fumigated and completely redecorated the hotel room. What the crap, people? I mean, I've cleaned out a fireplace, and you don't just leave chunks of ash and crap laying around in it. Do you, oh, my gosh. Do you These think, are the do you th- worst criminals Do you think ever. maybe that was just one of the plot holes that Mr. <laughs> Donald was referring to? 
<laughs> so this is not even my biggest gripe with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest gripe with the movie comes in a few minutes <laughs> when they start discussing well what are we all gonna do about this and uh the hotel manager says nothing you're not gonna do anything about it because we did this for the greater good mm-hmm. say it everybody the greater good yeah because we didn't want people to find out the bubonic plague was in our ho- in our hotel. And, oh my gosh, if they'd found out it was in our city, nobody would have come to the city. And the health inspectors agreed. They helped us cover it up. This was all done legally. We even turned in the death certificate showing that he died from the bubonic plague. And all the city officials that saw it totally agreed that we just shouldn't tell anybody. Now... <laughs> <laughs> We've been having people shoot at us through our windows, but we didn't want to go to the police because they might find out what's been going on at our hotel, being the bubonic plague. (sighs) But everybody already knew. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody already knew. And that even is not the most irritating part of this movie. The most irritating part of this movie is then Cornish agrees, you know what? Yeah, you're right. We're not going to do anything about this. Let's all just walk away and forget about it. Enid, you can understand how this is important. We just need to walk away and forget about it because, you know, nobody needs to know about this, right? Right. And Enid goes, oh, yeah. Let's all just walk away and forget about it. Yeah. (laughs) That is my biggest complaint about this movie. You have a woman that has been committed, has been chasing what's happened to her brother for over a year, has just been nearly terrified to death, and when they say your brother had the bubonic plague, she goes, oh, crap, my bad, guys. Let's just forget this ever happened. Wow. (laughs) I mean, oh. So, and to bring it back to us as the audience, we spend 40 (laughs) minutes watching Cornish and Walcott talk to each other in one to two to three to go, you know, from one room to another. And then we get a little bit of interesting, you know, oh my gosh, these guys are trying to drive this woman crazy. And you know what? It's all right. Nothing happened. Yeah, no. All for not. Edith apparently is the most shallow person on earth because you know what? Yeah, I just wasted a year and a half of my life looking for this, but it's all just, you know, too gross. Yeah, so let's just forget about it. I don't months, really care about my brother after all. Sent, spent oh months in a psychiatric ward. Oh my goodness. No problem. This is all so, for the greater you know, good. The greater good. <laughs> it's just Yeah, sorry, that's a that's a thing we do. Uh, it's uh so this movie I probably really should give it a one. (laughs) (laughs) After all of that, guys, if you got through that explanation, please adjust my number down to a one. Because, yeah, the end of this movie is so absolutely deplorable that it really doesn't deserve any bigger than a one. (laughs) When you've got all of this waste of time and then you get to the end and everybody just says, you know what, this movie was so bad, audience, you literally should just forget it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this movie does deserve a one. You're right. Okay, good. In fact, let's just forget it ever. Happened. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is yeah. Just never mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit stop. We'll just forget this. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. So there you go. Thanks, guys, for listening to that bit of a rant. I just I can't believe any person that cares enough about their brother to return from their trip to try and find him. Period. 
would really just walk away after this and say, ah, yeah, let's just forget it ever happened. That's, oh, yeah, that's the the major travesty of this movie is literally the last three minutes of it. Yes. Yeah, I was willing to kind of go with maybe it's just sort of a a time thing. You know, you got to put yourself in the time in the 1930s and things like the plagues and coming out of the depression. (laughs) It's kind of like, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. And then no one pays for the crimes that they've committed. You know, if it had been the late 1800s and we had been in Victorian England, or not 1800s, ignore my time scale, but if we'd been in Victorian England and it had been the bubonic plague, I absolutely believe everybody would have just wanted to cover it up and walk away and the family wouldn't have been scandalized by it. But not in the 1930s, not in America. I just, I, I, I'm left to believe that she's a cold, heartless biatch <laughs> that didn't ever really loved her brother at all. Right. You're a bad person, Enid. You're an awful, awful sister. <laughs> well, you would think she would still at least be upset for them having her committed to a freaking you hospital. Would think? Wouldn't that be so? Hey, guys, I need restitution. Give me some money. We'll be good after that. But you've not only committed me; you've tried to make me literally crazy. The only thing, is, the only thing uh, that could have made it worse, that if that hotel manager had said to her, "Apartment A is open for you anytime you want to." <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have it. It's you back. the least we could do. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man. That lady. Yeah. Oh, she does. You know what? I think I take it back. I'm with the hotel manager. She does need to be committed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, this thing was just the, the writing was just awful from beginning to end the characters were weren't good uh well and i'm i'm so sad because this is the missed opportunity of probably the century there were there were some good things going on right in the middle of this movie Mm -hmm. you know where where she comes back from a trip that she has no choice she has to take and not only do they say that her brother's not there they look through the registry cards he's not there nobody recognizes her and then to To cap it off, they take her up to the room she stayed in, and it's not at all the same. That is like a prime storyline for a modern movie. Yeah, I mean, you could take that and you could run with it. But it just falls flat on its face in this case. Yeah, I I don't like like any of the other characters. She's, that's (laughs) kind of interesting, and she's interesting in those flashback scenes and those moments. Mm -hmm. And and the guy that likes her is interesting because he's been with her this whole time trying to help her through it. Yeah, exactly. Although I, I think his um, his mode to try to get back to him is a little <laughs> skewed. Uh, it well, is. we'll just ruin him uh, by... Hey, he is an expert shot, though. Yeah. You know? Thank you, uh, Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> but then we've got the detective that is just literally... He's got everything for every occasion. Oh, my gosh. I, you, just, you just know that if someone took a shot at him... He would have just happened to be wearing some sort of bulletproof vest. Yep, Kevlar wasn't around yet, but they had mar- they had steel. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I just happened to have this book over my heart. Right. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I, I yeah, I use that. I I always have it in there. I use it for you know in ways. <laughs> in ways. <laughs> that seriously. Oh gosh, guys, we could keep going. Yeah. <laughs> How about we just ranch for a while? <laughs> no, it's just any time they needed anything. Uh, okay, um, how are we going to get him out of this room? Oh, this guy's got a lockpick. Oh, of course he does. Yeah. 
Um, how are we, how are we going to... And gonna, he can open any lock. How is he going to be able to see across the room? Oh, he's got these special glasses. Okay, yeah, good. Go with that. Oh, oh but oh, but wait, how does he know what they said? Oh, he can read lips. Yeah. Is he deaf too? I would, Were you waiting <laughs> no? for something when he says, boy, I sure would have liked to have seen what was written on that note. Were you waiting for something to come up? Oh, my God. I was, no. I was waiting for like the pencil on the pad of paper. Yep, he should have had some. I mean, come on, what a failure. Yeah. He had one thing he couldn't get access to. I still don't know what was on that note. No, 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 no. We don't know what was on the note. Yeah. It could have it could have been a dirty picture for all we know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the note from the cleaning staff. Uh, I can't come Thursday. List. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, it had nothing at all to do with the guy. It had just nothing at all to do with him. Right. It was her grocery list that she forgot in there. Yeah. <laughs> that she just came back and went, oh, I forgot the milk. Dang it. Well, I'll get it tomorrow. All right. No, we need it. I'll have to call a taxi right away. Oh, my goodness. And, and who leaves it in a pot? Oh, there's just too much in here. Well, that was oh, obviously, man. I mean, that's where you kind of get the impression that they had a system that if there was trouble or something, that whoever says Eric was working for, he would leave a message and he'd put it in the vase so she'd know where to find it. And that was like some system they worked out. That was good. That's like an actual like, okay, that's kind of clever. Or he could have just left a note on the table that said, I'm at our house. Meet me there. Yeah. Yeah, that no one else would know about. Yeah, exactly. Nobody else would understand. Nobody would know where that was. Oh, gosh, there are only 800,000 houses in this city. They're oh. they're also very terrible at giving you any sense of geography. Um, or, Aside from the bushes? Well, <laughs> you have no idea. Your apartment A, you get the impression it's a couple floors up because they talk about the, the, the street traffic and he does the uh, the thing with the binoculars or whatever. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. But he's like, oh, and it's a, this, you know, this apartment, uh, the, you know, down the street on the corner, you know, I'm like, okay. and But then it's like, you almost get the feeling that they're on the ground. Nope, they're not on the ground floor. They're somewhere <laughs> else. Well, and the bullet was, the bullet mark was actually angled up a bit. Right. But it would have had to have come from the left. It come from the other left. direction. Yes. So... <laughs> Oh man, I'm confused. Yes. But they were definitely looking down the street to the right when it got when the dummy got shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Guys, we're going in circles now. Yeah, I, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, and it, So there you go. Our recommendation for a movie that uh, man, I don't know if you should watch it or not. I, it's just to pick at it. Like if you know, if you like to watch things like Fifty Shades of Grey, just to make fun of them, <laughs> this is probably a good film. Yeah, for this you. is this is definitely kind of a you watch it and just go, "What the hell?" Why? <laughs> and, and it's frustrating because I do feel like there was potential in the story. Yeah, and that's probably and, the only reason I give it the one is because yeah. of the potential that was missed. Yeah. Well, think about Secret Agent by Alfred Hitchcock. I have to look this up. Um, I think was made the same year. Mm. I, I'm sorry, four years later, 1936. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the most suspenseful, really good spy films that I've ever seen. And it was made in the 1930s. Right. It's got everything I wanted this movie to have. So um, it was definitely possible in this era to take a story and make it good, make it suspenseful, and keep people hooked through it and give them a satisfying ending. And I think you're right. I think it was just laziness. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the uh, the director a little bit. I want to bring that up, too. The director, Spencer yes. Gordon Bennett. Now, what I found was interesting with him, he made kind of his fame and fortune, if you will, 
doing serials. He's directed more serials <laughs> than any other director. He, that makes sense because this movie is like three serials. It's yeah. like a buddy movie and then a, a traumatic romance movie. And then, gosh, what's the end like? Oh, it's like a, a spooky movie. Yeah. It's like a haunting movie. Yeah, he, he did it, everything from Superman, <laughs> uh, The Adventures of Sir Galahad, the, the, the early uh, Batman and Robin serial. So, but that lots of, of lots of Western B fit, uh, features. But yeah, he, he was really famous for doing the serials. And I was like, and you know, that's the way this film feels. You could exactly. all, you, there, there are moments like... Um, when Walcock faints, it's kind of like, oh, that would be the end of episode one. Yes. And, oh, what's the cliffhanger? Oh, my gosh. Tune in next week to find out what happened to what Dr. Happened? Walcott. Yeah. Yes. And there are many that, that moments. That pulls a lot of this movie together. There are many moments in this film where you feel like you could put a stop and then come back mm-hmm. next week to... And that's exactly the way that Cornish kind of comes across. And all those serials, mm. you watch some of the old, like, Commander Cody or whatever, the, the serials always end with your week? hero in some yeah. situation where it's like, oh, my gosh, he, he'll, he'll never make it out of this one. And the next episode, he magically finds the door that he didn't see yeah. before or yeah. a, a well, rope then, comes down from the ceiling and he can climb yes. up and escape just the like, lava just, or he's just suddenly at the top of it you never find out how he got up yeah there. exactly <laughs> and that's exactly what cornish does every time they're in some situation how are we going to figure this out ah i've got this <laughs> it's deus ex cornish <laughs> it's um, deus ex cornish i like that Seri- yeah, that sounds like that something you ordered a bakery sense. or something that's <laughs> i'll have a deus ex cornish <laughs> Cornish machina, please. <laughs> uh, now that makes a lot of sense, though, because not only is it broken up like that, but there really are three very distinct acts in this. I must call it a play. You know, you have the the initial investigation part, and then you have the troubled lovers section, and then you have the damsel in distress section. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that, that that background that background applies so much to this movie. It makes a lot of sense out of it. Doesn't make it any better. No, <laughs> it does no. make a lot of sense out of it. Yeah. Now I have no idea how the film was actually or the story was originally written, but I think the director certainly at this time had a lot of influence on mm-hmm. how the story gets broken out. And I, mm-hmm. I just with that kind of history and that kind of knowledge behind him is like he may not have known how to direct any other way <laughs> yeah yeah that's very valid well interesting very, thank you for that yeah uh, i just i, I didn't want to bring that up <laughs> i wanted to hear your thoughts on it after we kind of got through well, the film <laughs> you got an earful of those <laughs> <laughs> this has been the lydia show good night no <laughs> This is this is what happens when we, we, we miss a month. Lydia's got lots to say. Oh man. Or when we just have a female character that pisses me off. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't still I seriously I got to the end of that movie and I looked at my cat and I said, You're freaking kidding me. And she just looked at me like a cat. But I could yeah I just couldn't believe it. I thought I, I have a brother. I would never ever react that way. I don't care if he had the bubonic plague. Love you, Noah. <laughs> like, no way. I wouldn't just be like, yeah, you know, for the greater good. <laughs> like, oh, God, people. That is interesting. Well, so so it is an interesting movie. I think, you know, if you want to see a lot of what not to do in a movie, this is a good study. 
Um, but yeah, I still, I still can't help thinking that there is some entertaining stuff in it that I don't regret having watched it. As much as it made me angry, I don't regret having seen it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. Like I said, it was kind of fun to watch, but it's just, it's not good. And it's not, it's not a film <laughs> that I would like say, oh no, you've got to see this. Even, even yeah. as a, oh, it's so bad, it's good kind of thing. It's, it's not, <laughs> it's just kind of It's bad. not, you know, if you're looking for it's so bad, it's good, go back to what Prisoners of the Lost Universe, or I, we've got a dozen in our, in our backlogs of just like movies that are just awful, but you really should watch it. Mm-hmm. This one, it's kind of like, if you want a movie to take a challenge on of rewriting and then submit it to Hollywood, here's our offering. Right. <laughs> well, I tell you, before we go, and speaking of emails, we got we got that email from Graham Donald that suggested this film for us. Uh, we did get an email from Pete Quint, uh, host of the uh, Good Beer, Bad Movie Night uh, podcast. He wrote us, he just says, uh, Good day, Lydia and Christopher. He says, I'm in the middle of Harold Lloyd's Safety Last, and I'm mesmerized. Have you ever considered doing one of his films? And I had to double check and look Mr. Lloyd up to actually find out who he was talking about, because I will admit, you know, there's a lot of these actors, especially through the silent pictures and stuff, that I'm not as familiar with as I probably should be. Harold Lloyd is a is kind of credited as being kind of uh, ranks alongside Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton as one of the most popular and influential film comedians of the silent era. And he did actually do some, he did a lot of silent films and he also did some talkies. Now I did not get a chance to uh, go and see if any of his films might fall into the orphan entertainment uh, wheelhouse, but it is definitely something I will look into. (laughs) And uh, I think that would, uh, that'd be a lot of fun. I agree. Let's look at it. Yeah, we will. We shall do so. So, Pete, thank you very much for writing yes, in and asking. You. And I hope you enjoyed the film. Yeah, Safety Last is one I've, I've been wanting to. That's got that famous one of him hanging off the clock uh, high on the street. They do it in a kind of like a trick shot. But okay. um, that's from like 1923. So, I got to double check. That may be officially public domain now. But I will look into his films and find out what he's got available to us. That would be, uh, that'd be a lot of fun. So I guess that is going to do it for this episode. Lydia, thank you very much. I'm sorry the film wasn't any better. We knew <laughs> I, we knew from the description that it may not be so great. Um, I think it was just we wanted it sounded like it could be a, little, a lot of fun and uh, maybe it was. I think it was kind of fun, but <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun talking about it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it, while I was in the process of watching it, especially the first time, I was just captivated. And and I think had it ended any other way, it probably would have gotten a three from me. Oh, really? But, wow. Oof, man, that ended. Yeah. I just oh, it was such a cop out. Yeah, because <laughs> because oh, well, I'm not going to launch into it again. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Before I get started. Yeah, yeah let's, let's sign <laughs> off quick. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Just a uh, just reminder, you want to send any emails or anything, orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Come join us on the Facebook group. We get a new member up there at least uh, every week or two, and it's always awesome to, to increase the numbers and get some discussions going. Um, looking forward to hearing any thoughts that you have. <laughs> Join us. Join us. (laughs) But that is going to do it. Thanks very much. And thank you, Lydia. And uh, we'll talk to everybody next month. Uh, Bye. (laughs) Bye.
say bye, but then you didn't say anything. I was like, 